John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, John's prologue. And the Word of God says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being which has come into being. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, that all men might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to bear testimony about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, gives light to every man. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, children born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies about Him. He cries out, saying, This is He of whom I said, He who came after me is greater than I, because He existed before me. From His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, or he has explained him. John's prologue, what a powerful passage of scripture. One of the most famous native sons of the state of Missouri is a man that I'm assuming a lot of you young people don't know, but his name was Omar Bradley. He was a four-star general in the United States Army in World War II. General Patton is more famous and more flamboyant, but there's an argument that can be made that in the long run, General Bradley may have been more effective as a general and a leader. While Patton was flamboyant and very fashionable and stylish and promoted himself, General Bradley, who was born in Clark, Missouri, just south of Moberly, into a log cabin in 1893, his son, he was working as a boiler maker, making 17 cents an hour when his Sunday school teacher encouraged him to uh, take the entrance exam for West Point, and the rest is history. Well, during World War II, he earned the reputation of being the G.I. General. While Patton would dress with his uh, pearl-handled revolvers and these things, General Bradley dressed in an old field overcoat with his stars sewn on the sleeves. He wore an old field hat and old boots. But he was most famous for going out into the front lines and visiting the troops, even in their foxholes. I read an interview with a man who passed away, but he was a World War I—excuse uh, me, World War II veteran, an Idaho, Idaho native, Ben Brock, and he talked about being in a foxhole in Luxembourg in the cold winter of 1844, before the Battle of the Bulge. And General Bradley shows up and gets in the foxhole with him and asks him if he needs anything. He said, "Well, yes, we could use some medical supplies and some food." Two days later, a truck showed up at his platoon with that corporal's name written on the side in chalk from General Bradley. If you think a general who gets in the foxholes with his soldiers is surprising, infinitely more amazing is God becoming man. Jesus Christ stepping out of eternity into time. And the 
prologue of John teaches us about the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. And from this passage, we learn about the person and work of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. So our sermon this morning is John's prologue and the preaching of the gospel. John's prologue and the preaching of the gospel. I'm going to make eight affirmations about Jesus Christ. There's more that can be said, but at least eight from this passage. First of all, when we look at the prologue, it says, in the beginning was the word. Most of you know this. That's the word logos there. It's the word logos. And when it says word, it's not referring to letters or syllables. That's a title for the Son of God. And in this context, most likely John has the idea of the Word of God in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's Word is the agent of creation and salvation and communication. Uh, It's also a, a bridge word because his audience, his Gentile readers would have been aware of this concept of the Logos that kind of floated through Greek philosophy, people trying to understand what was underlying this world and holding things together. But John really fills it with New Testament meaning, and it's a title for the Son of God. The Word was with God. Eight affirmations. First, we see the Son of God, God the Son, existed in eternity past. Look at the first two clauses in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That little phrase, in the beginning, should draw your attention back to Genesis 1-1. And that's what John wants you to do. He wants you to understand that the God of creation is the God of salvation. The God who made the world is the God who's going to save sinners in this world. It is in the beginning, all the way back. And that little verb was is an imperfect indicative. It doesn't point back to a particular point in time. It just was, and he was, and he was. God the Son was, and he was, and he was. And the language is interesting in the second clause. The first clause, in the beginning, was the Word. And the second clause, and the Word was with God. That little terminology there carries an idea of face-to-face relationship that God the Son is co-eternal with God the Father and co-equal with God the Father, and He just was. The noted Southern Baptist Greek scholar from Southern Seminary, A.T. Robertson, from an earlier generation, comments on that first phrase in John 1.1, and he says, Three times in this sentence, John uses this imperfect of the verb to be, which conveys no idea of origin for God or for the Logos, simply continuous existence. He just was, and he was, and he was, and he will be, and he will be, and he will be. He is inescapable. You cannot get around this person, Jesus Christ. He always existed in eternity past. He will always exist into eternity future. So the question is, what will you and I do with him on our own response in faith in the preaching of the gospel. It is the pre-existence. God the Son existed in eternity past. But not only that, God the Son, secondly, is in his very nature God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was what? He was God. That's an interesting phrase that has caused no end of consternation among people because in the Greek it says this, kai theos, And people get upset about that because there is no article in front of the noun theos. And I have heard people going through all manner of, seems to me, grammatical dark arts. And I almost imagine them with some boiling vat and they're pulling in some wolfbane and the hair of a, a frog and they're boiling it all together to try to explain why there's no article in front of the noun theos. That's nonsense. It's an arthros. 
is pointing out to you what the object is. You see, in English, we typically compose our sentences subject, verb, object. But in Greek, they don't necessarily follow that. And it's okay to have the object at the start of the sentence. That's all it's saying is the lack of the article. It, the object is God. And so the idea is the word was God. He is completely God in his very nature. He is completely God. There's no, he bears the very nature of God. If you ever have work done on your house, sometimes you will hire a contractor and if the work and the job is big enough, the contractor might hire a subcontractor to do some of the work. And it's easy to deal with a contractor. It's not so easy to deal with a subcontractor. Because I hate to say uh, disparaging things about people in the service industry, but sometimes the subcontractor is not cons as concerned about things as the contractor is. And so if you deal with a subcontractor, that's a real hassle. Listen carefully. That third phrase in John 1.1, 1, 1, the word was God, means this. God didn't sub out the work of salvation. God did it himself. The word was God. He came down to this world to save you and to save you and me and to offer hope. And it's interesting. Verse 2 says, and he was in the beginning with God. The demonstrative pronoun there, he. Some have suggested that it is emphatic and it means he himself and no other. That he is the Savior and no other. He's not one of ten avatars. He's not just some human who became God or achieved Godhood. It is God come down. He was God. He varies God in his very nature. Well, when you get to John 1.1, 1, 1, you are neck deep in Trinitarian theism. That's what the Bible teaches. Someone says, well, you know, I did some research and I discovered the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Well, congratulations. You know how to do a Google search. Good for you. Yes, indeed, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the doctrine is in the Bible. Uh, Islam does not like the doctrine of the Trinity, and frankly, Muhammad didn't understand it. Surah 4 uh, in the Quran says this, Say not three, desist, for Allah is one God. He had the confused idea that we're trying to say there's three gods who are one God. We do not believe there are three gods who are one God. We believe there is one God who eternally exists as three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, same substance. It is one God. It's Trinitarian theism. And let me just share something with you. I teach ethics. I have noticed a pattern in the history over the last 2,000 years since the gospel was first preached on this world. Anytime some cult leader starts tinkering around with the Trinity, starts diminishing the threeness or the oneness of God, they always get into some sort of legalistic cult. And they try to lower God down to their level just a little bit. But oh, they're ready to step in and help you out with whatever plan it is. And frequently it's about serving them and lifting them up. Listen, the Trinity is the heart of Christianity theism. We don't believe in three gods who are one God. One God eternally existing as three persons. God the Son is God in His very nature. Third, God the Son is Creator. God the Son is Creator. I have bad news for you guys. This clock up here says 1110, and that means the clock is wrong, and I have no idea what time I'm at. <laughs> there is something up there. Amen. I see a clock over there. The best thing happened. Thank you, Tyler. I appreciate it. I really do. 
Third, God the Son is creator. Look at verse 3. All things came into being through him. Notice the difference in the verbs. In verse 1, we have that verb was. The word just was in eternity past. But creation came into being. Do you see the difference? There was a time when creation was not, but then it came into being. Uh, There's all this debate about what was in the beginning and creation. And uh, the typical model that's suggested today is something like this, that all the matter at some point billions of years ago, all the matter in the universe was combined into, Uh, compressed into something the size of a dime. Now, it's hard to imagine everything in this room being compressed into something the size of a dime, much less all the matter in the universe, but that's the theory. And you say, how'd that happen? Well, they suggest, they posit that there were laws of physics in work then that aren't in work today. And uh, all the things in the universe were compressed into something the size of a dime, which is called a point of singularity. And then the proposal is that a vacuum fluctuation came along and set off a big bang, and thus here we all are today. And you say, well, what's a vacuum? Vacuum fluctuation, that's the thing that set off the point of singularity. Well, what's the point of singularity? Well, that's the thing that set off by the vacuum fluctuation. Do you see the circular argument here? They don't know. Uh, I, really, at some point, Dr. Swain, I would like to take some of these theorists back to Rogers and Hammerstein and the sound of music and remind them nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could, right? I mean, that uh, it is creation. He made it all and he made you. You are created by God that loves you and has a purpose and plan for your life. The Son of God is creator. Would I bring your attention to an important fact? You say, well, in the Old Testament, is it Yahweh creator? Yes, he is. Well, here it's calling God the Son, Jesus Christ the creator. Yes, he is. A pattern you see in the New Testament is what Yahweh did in the Old Testament. Jesus does in the New Testament. I can imagine what John thought about when he wrote down these words and the Holy Spirit put his hand on his hand and he pinned out all things came into being through him. He made everything. Can you see John there on the Sea of Galilee? And the storm is rising and the sea sea waving and rushing and rushing over the boat. And they're in fear and they're they're striving against the oars. And Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. And they wake him up and say, Lord, don't you care that we're drowning? And what did he say? Peace be still. And all the winds and the seas, it's calm. I wonder sometime if he just didn't stand up, look at the wind and go, shh, hush. And their response was, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey his voice? Indeed, what manner of man is this? i tell you why he could tell the wind and the sea to hush, because he made every bit of it. He knows what makes a wave a wave and makes the wind the wind, and he can calm the storm in your life. He is the creator. God the Son is creator. Fourth, God the Son is light and life. God the Son is light and life. Look in verse 4. It says, in him was light, and that... In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus Christ has life. Uh, as eternally existence, he has life in his very nature, and when we are saved, he gives to us what is part of his very nature. He gives eternal life to us, and so Jesus Christ gives life. The world has a lot of messages that they are selling us about what's supposed to give life and living and what it means to live. Right now, our culture is in the throes of a cannabis uh, explosion. Seems everywhere you go, there's a cannabis dispensary. And Missouri has something on the ballot this fall about legalizing recreational cannabis. I get a little weary of people that talk to me about how mellow pot makes people. The people I grew up around, when they smoked pot, they did not get mellow. And uh, I would just remind you, there is a term, it's a slang term, pothead. And it does not emerge from nowhere. It has substance behind it. 
Well, you may not know this. There's a magazine dedicated to the culture of cannabis. It's called High Times Magazine. High Times Magazine. It was started by a man named Tom Forcade in the early 70s. He was a part-time drug dealer and became a, a cannabis advocate, they said. So the title of the magazine was High Times. This is good times. Go smoke some cannabis. It's going to be good. But on November 17th, 1978, Tom Forcade took a gun and ended his own life. So much for the high times. And the next spring, just a few months after he killed himself, they had an article in High Times magazine about how to freebase cocaine. High times, and it ends in death, and it ends in death, and it ends in death, and what this world is selling you ends in death, but Jesus leads to life. There's all sorts of people that come along claiming to bring life and hope to this world. Maybe you've heard of Mao Zedong, the founder of modern communist China. You may not know this, but when he was the dictator of China, a hymn was composed to him. Just as we have hymns to Jesus, they composed a hymn to Mao Zedong. The title of the hymn was and is, the East is red. Here's what it says in English. The East is red. The sun rises. From China arises Mao Zedong. He strives for the people's happiness. Hurrah! He is the people's great savior. What a lie. Mao Zedong led to the death of millions and millions and millions of Chinese. Historians don't even know how many millions died in his great leap forward and the cultural revolution. But hear the nonsense. Oh, he's our great savior. He's leading to happiness. And there have been dictators that have walked across the stage of history, all of them claiming to bring peace and life and joy and all they brought was death and death and death but in the son of god there is life and there is light and jesus christ leads to light leads to light and life jesus christ is life and light the eternal son of god is light and life fifth god the son came to save sinners god the son came to save sinners uh, verses 9 and 10 and 11 talk about the rejection of god the son but verses 12 and 13 talk about salvation regeneration conversion and it's, verse 12 is quite interesting to me personally. Notice how God's initiative and human response are all joined together in one verse. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. It's interesting. The first clause in the sentence is human response. They received Him. Third clause is those who believe in His name, human response. The middle clause, it's bracketed by this God's initiative. We could really call it God's grace. To them, He gave the right to become the children of God. And then he amplifies what that means in verse 13 by saying they're born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. This is regeneration. God saves people. And I want to remind you, God saves people. And he adopts people into his family. And he makes them his children. And that's for you. And that's for you. And that's for you. God came for you. Uh, we live in a day and age when the family has been decimated. As I speak to the congregation this morning, I have no idea of the confusion and chaos which may represent the families of some of you here today. Perhaps your mother and father were trapped in so much confusion and sin and destructive patterns in their own life that your childhood is a, is a confused memory, a bag of pain and hurt and hope that was never really achieved for a peaceful family life. A uh, number of children in the United States who are raised in fatherless homes where the father is not there uh, is astounding. 
And it can be disorienting because we want to know that our parents love us and they care for us. And to be a child and to realize that my father's not here and maybe that's you. Your dad was never around. My mother was born to an unwed mother in rural Alabama during the Great Depression. And my mother never knew her father. They lived in a town called Ashland, Alabama. My mother told me when she was a little girl, she would walk across the square in Ashland, Alabama, uh, and people would call her names because she was the girl in town who did not know who her father was. When my mother was 13 years old, 1946, at First Baptist Church, Ashland, Alabama, on a Sunday morning, she came forward at the invitation, gave her life to Jesus Christ, and she was saved. After the service, two women whom I do not know, but I believe were unusually sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, took her aside into a Sunday school room off the auditorium and sat down to talk to her about her new faith in Jesus Christ. And they said something that has impacted my family in an incredibly, incredibly positive way in the decades since. They said to my mother, we know people in this town are talking about you because you don't know who your father is. But we want you to know, Jesus doesn't look at you that way. Somebody say amen. Jesus does not look at you that way because you've been adopted into God's family. And I want you to know, I don't know what your background is or what your family was like. And people may have hung a label on you and said something about you because your father was this or your mother was this and your dad wasn't there and your mother wasn't there. You have been adopted if you've been saved. You've been adopted into the family of God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. If you're one of his kids, that makes you royalty. That means you are a royal priesthood adopted into the family of God. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save sinners just like you and me. Well, Branch, wait a minute. What? Came to seminary. I've been checking out the different theologians. I've been reading what they had to say about these things. I'm really glad. You, I mean that earnestly. You need to. And I want to encourage you in that endeavor. Continue to do so. I mean that earnestly and sincerely, and I'm not trying to be anything other than that. But the question is not what this theologian said, or that theologian said. The question from John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 is, have you received Christ and have you believed on him? Well, Branch, I've been in this class, I've been in your class, this professor says this, this professor says that. You know, and, well, hey, that's called getting an education, okay? It's what you're here to do, to help you learn and to help you think. But can I tell you what every professor on this campus believes? It is from the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 4 on Salvation, the final sentence in paragraph 1, which says, there is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ. So every professor on this campus from every background has a question for you. Have you placed your personal faith in Jesus Christ? Have you believed on Jesus in the way the Bible says? And you say, well, I filled out that, uh, that application when I came here and I had to give a testimony. I understand our academic dean gave a wonderful sermon on the life of Adoniram Judson just a couple of weeks ago. When Adoniram Judson started seminary, he was not converted. And I was, as Dr. Madsen said, in administration. I read, I don't know how many admissions files where people gave their testimony. And what I know is, if you've been around a church long enough, you know what words to write down on a piece of paper that a seminary wants to hear. But my question is, have you believed on Jesus in the way that the Bible says? Have you trusted Christ? And you say, well, I, I, what about this guy and that guy? Yes, well, what about Jesus? What will you do with this man, Jesus Christ? He came to save sinners just like you. 
Well, if I'm a student at a seminary and I get saved, what's going to happen? You're probably going to be a better student. All right? You say, well, what do I do if I get saved? Find a good Baptist church. Present yourself as a candidate for baptism this Sunday. Be scripturally baptized. I promise you, you'll be a better preacher if you have been born again and baptized in the way the Bible says. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Not only did He come to save sinners, in Jesus Christ, God the Son became man. Look at verse 14. The Word became what? Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That phrase, made His dwelling, it means tabernacled. Tabernacled. The background for that term is the Old Testament experience of uh, Israel coming out of Egypt and the tabernacle in the middle of the the camp of the Israelites, and when they built it, God's presence and His glory came down and filled the tabernacle. Wow. And here in the New Testament, that sort of language is used to describe what happened in the incarnation. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. He tabernacled among us. He was here with us, tempted in all ways, just as we are yet without sin. He was completely God, and completely man, the infinite God-man. He wasn't all God and no man. He wasn't all man and no God. He wasn't part God and part man. He wasn't mostly God and a little bit man. He wasn't mostly man and a little bit God. He wasn't a man who became God. He wasn't a man that God looked down and chose and decided to make God. No, he was the infinite God-man. He was just as much God as if he were no man and just as much man if he were no God. It is the incarnation, the one person with two natures of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, you say, well, why is that piece of doctrine important? Because it's connected to your atonement and my atonement for our sins. There is a scarlet thread that goes from John 1.1, the Word was God, to John 1.14, the Word made flesh, to John 19.30 in the cry of Jesus on the cross to tell us how the debt is paid. Listen, I know that my sin debt is paid. My sin debt was of such a magnitude that only God could solve my problem. And at the cross, the God-man bearing my sin debt on the hill... My word, it is atonement. With, if you understand what happened at the cross and you placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you may have come to chapel today with a sin or a lifestyle or a habit or something about you before you were saved and you've carried that guilt and you've carried that guilt and you've carried that guilt. The Word became flesh and He died on a cross and He rose from the grave. Your atonement has been completed. That's why we sing the old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. It is the atonement and it's the incarnation. The Word became flesh. And it's closely tied to the fact that God the Son overflows with grace. Look at verse 16. From His fullness we've all received and grace for grace. There is one English translation that says, from His fullness and we've all received and one blessing after another. That's the most water-bound nothing I've ever read in a translation. It is grace for grace in the Greek. It just overflows. He overflows. Let me put it this way. He overflows with grace. Once Lisa and I went on a hike at Joshua Tree National Monument 
And uh, it was a time of year when the weather was nice, not so hot, so we were able to go on a longer hike. And we came to a point in the middle of the desert there where some cottonwood trees were at, and there was a sign from the Park Service explaining there's a spring underground there, and the Native Americans, the original inhabitants of the land, would come there for centuries, and they would dig out the sand, and when you dig out the sand, underneath all that sand is some water. And I'm sure that was a blessing and a benefit to the original inhabitants of what we now call Joshua Tree. The reason I tell you that is this, God's grace is not like that spring under the sand in the desert in Joshua tree. You don't have to dig around and hunt for it. God's grace, it's grace for grace. It is a mighty Niagara cascading down from Calvary's hill. And let me tell you two things about grace. First of all, grace reaches you where you are. God's grace flows down Calvary's hill to no matter how low the canyon is that you are at, and it reaches you where you are. And the second thing I'll tell you is grace is free. You do nothing for it. God gives it, and it's free, and it's free, and it's free. And that leads to the last affirmation that God the Son has explained. God. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. Well, there's a mountain in that statement. In the Old Testament, uh, there are these visions of God, but no one's ever seen God in all His fullness, even Isaiah the Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1. Uh, if you remember, Moses said, God, I want to see you. And he, God said, well, you can't see my glory. And he, or you can't see all of me. He put him in the cleft of the rock and he saw his back as he passed by him. But even in the Greco-Roman world, there's statues of gods everywhere. Here's a God, there's a God, here's a God, there's a God. No one's seen God at any time. But the only begotten God, monogenes theos, that is a unique phrase in the New Testament. Only place it pops up. Wow, the only begotten God, he hath explained him. Who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That little word explained is the Greek word where we get our word exegesis from. Leon Morris said this about that little phrase, he has explained him. And I know it's a danger to try to read modern definitions back into words, but listen to what he said about that, that verb, he has explained him, he has exegeted him. He said, it is a suggestive thought that Christ is the exegesis of the Father. Can I tell you what that means? If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. Some of you are wondering if God loves you and God cares about you. You go read the story of the prodigal son and when that young man got up out of the pig pen, what did Jesus say the father did? The father what? He, he ran to the son. You want to know if God cares for you? Go to Calvary's hill. You want to know if God cares for you? You go to an empty tomb. Come with me to a hillside and see him ascend to the father and hear the angels say, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing? This same Jesus, he's coming back someday. You want to know what God's like? You go look at Jesus Christ. He cares for you and he loves you and he died for you. He has a purpose and a plan for your life. He offers you eternity as your home and forgiveness as your right and your benefit. It's the prologue of John. Well, did you notice there's a preacher in this passage? The prologue has a preacher. John chapter 1, verse 6. Did you see this? There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He's referring to John the Baptist. You know, we had one of our folks on the site visit team a couple of weeks ago who was kind of remonstrating with us from his Methodist background whether he should be called John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. I'm not qualified to adjudicate that debate. I just know he wasn't John the Sprinkler. But um, uh, so uh, what I would tell you is uh, 
I think John MacArthur's right. If you read the book of Acts, John MacArthur said that in the first century, there's what he called a JB cult. There were these people kind of making a cult out of John the Baptist. So the apostle John feels he needs to correct this right off the bat. And the first thing he says about the apostle John, excuse me, about John the Baptist, what the apostle John says about John the Baptist is he says, there was a what sent from God? A man sent from God. There's a reminder here for us. Every preacher of the gospel is just a man. Just a man. In recent months and years, hey, just a never-ending cascade of horrible stories about preachers and ministers and Christian leaders we all held in high regard who have just done the most immoral and vulgar and dishonoring things to the name and cause of Christ, and it hurts. It's painful. And I think there's a lot going on there, but among many things, I think some of them have forgotten they're just a man. They're just a man. Can I tell a little story? There was a Greek philosopher, his name was Empedocles, and Empedocles lived on the island of Sicily between 400 and 500 B.C., but he got a little full of himself, and he started trying to convince people he was just a little bit semi-divine, that he was one of the gods come down. So the legend says that at the end of his life, he wanted to convince people that he was divine, and so he's trying to look for a way that he could disappear, and everybody think he just kind of went off into the next realm. So he climbed up Mount Etna, the volcano, and jumped in, his body being consumed by the lava, so no evidence, and everyone would think, well, he just disappeared. He really was a god. He was divine. He disappeared. So they went out looking for him. They couldn't find him. They climb up on the crater of Mount Etna, and they're on the crater. Well, it seems Empedocles wore a very distinctive pair of bronze sandals, and they found on the edge of the crater... One of his sandals up there on the edge of the crater seems when he jumped in, he jumped out of his shoes and left one of them behind. And he was trying to convince everybody he was a god, but he left behind evidence he was just a man. And we've got some preachers that I think sometimes want to try to convince people they are just, they are a god. May I remind you, verse 8 says, he, him, about John the Baptist, it says, he himself was not the light. You and I as preachers are not the Messiah. And it's so easy to get a little full of ourselves. Uh, one of these preachers that had done one of these immoral things was very influential in my life. It meant so much to me. I remember once, Lisa and I were on vacation. I was a pastor in North Carolina, and we were in the city where this man pastored, and I wanted to go to his church and hear him preach. And we did. Wow, what a service. The music, the preaching, and everything. Just uh, throngs of people, thousands. And... Uh, I was a pastor of a small church. I was always gathering information and material from other churches that were doing things. And they, they had this flyer that it was really more than that. It was a pamphlet, just several pages long, that they gave to first-time guests. It was extremely well done. All the things that you people in communications would want to know, the weight of the paper and the color and the presentation, had a gospel outline in there, explained baptism, explained church membership, explained their church, uh, new church seminar. And it's about a five-by-seven glossy pamphlet. Got it? And I'll never forget when I turned it over on the back side of that five by seven pamphlet talking about how to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior was a five by seven glossy of that preacher on the back of the pamphlet. And when the word came out about what he'd done and his vulgar and immoral behavior, 25 years after I'd been at his church, 
all I could think about was the back of that pamphlet with a five by seven glossy. And I wanted to say, we're just a man. We're just a man. I'm not the Messiah. We are here to lift up the name of Jesus Christ and to point people to Jesus. We are not, listen, God didn't come to build my brand or to build your brand. He came to build your, his church. And it is his church that he came for and his church that he's building. And we're just a man. It's a preacher. We'd better not forget it. The prologue of John lifts up the name of Jesus Christ to lift up the name of Jesus, proclaim the name of Jesus. The date was June 23rd, 2018. Twelve members of a soccer team and their coach, that's 13 in total, in Thailand went uh, on an adventure spelunking in a cave there in Thailand. It was fun. I did that when I was a boy with some of my friends. They went back in the cave. They got a couple of hours back in there. But while they were in, monsoon rains came, flood came behind them. You remember the story. Thirteen young men trapped in a cave in Thailand. June 23rd, they're trapped in, that, trapped in that cave. They don't have any food with them. They're cold. It's damp. It's cold. They only have a few batteries for their flashlights, and those are running out. They're drinking water from a stalactite coming down from the ceiling because it's fresh. On July 2nd, 2018, this is, I guess, the 11th day they've been in the cave. July 2nd. They don't know. They are trapped in this cave. They don't know if anyone cares about them, if anyone's looking for them, if anyone knows that they've been lost, if there's any effort to save them. It looks hopeless. Suddenly, out of the water, they see some lights coming out of the water. And the room begins to light up where they're out, out of all this darkness. And two men, divers from Great Britain, a man named Rick Stanton and another man named John Volanthan, emerge out of the water. They come out of the water. And everyone in the cave is surprised. And the first question the British divers had was, how many of you are there here? They want to make sure they found them all. They said 13. And they interact and they dialogue. Well, these men have British accents and they popped up in a gay cave in Thailand. And so the men... These young men on that soccer team began to ask them, who are you and where are you from? And they said, we are from Great Britain, the UK. And those young men, their eyes begin to light up and they begin to realize they've been trapped in a cave underwater for 11 days. They don't know if anybody's searching for them. And from halfway around the world, two men came searching for them to help get them out of this dangerous situation. I've got a better story for you than that. You and I were lost in sin. There was no hope for us whatsoever. But God the Son stepped out of eternity into time. He died for our sin on the cross. He rose from the grave. He has purchased our salvation. He offers it free by grace. It is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's worth proclaiming. It's worth living. You know, Isaac Watts wrote a hymn that pulls all these ideas of the, the person of Jesus Christ and his work of redemption all together. It's called At the Cross. Do you know it? Alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Would you sing it with me? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I am. 
Lord, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would make us faithful preachers of the gospel. May we be humble before you and always lift up the name of Jesus and not lift up ourselves. And Jesus, we're praying that you will save people and glorify yourself through the salvation of sinners. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.